Hey, it's Martine. If you are like me and you are still crossing people off of your shopping list, consider the gift of knowledge by buying someone, or maybe even yourself, a subscription to The Washington Post. We have a very special deal right now. For just $9.99, you or someone you love can get a whole year to The Post and all of its content. This deal ends soon on January 4th. To get this perfect holiday gift, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Okay, enjoy the show. I promised when I got elected, I'd always give it to you straight from the shoulder. On Tuesday, President Biden addressed the latest surge in cases of the coronavirus, fueled by the rise of the Omicron variant, which is now the dominant variant in the United States. Let me answer some questions that lay uh, out the steps the vice president and I are taking to prepare for the rising number of cases experts tell us we can expect in the weeks ahead. First, the administration announced plans to make COVID testing more available by mailing half a billion home test kits to people who want them. We're providing access to free at-home tests for those who may have insurance as well, may not have insurance, I should say, as well. But it's not enough. We have to do more. We have to do better. And we will. They also have plans to get more resources to overwhelmed hospitals. One silver lining to all of this is that we do have more treatments against COVID than ever before. But of course, the best thing to do is to avoid getting sick in the first place. Because just like trying to get a test right now, cutting edge treatments like anti-COVID pills could be hard to get. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 21st. Today, what we know about emerging anti-COVID pills and how they could make the coronavirus less deadly. Plus, remembering feminist icon Bell Hooks. Last week, the U.S. blew past 800,000 COVID-related deaths. Cases and hospitalizations are climbing. It all feels like the movie Groundhog Day. Except this time, there is a new tool on the horizon. Anti-COVID pills, which are expected to be approved by the FDA as early as this week. There has been a lot of talk and promise about these pills helping to prevent severe illness. We wanted to know whether those promises were true. So we asked science reporter Carolyn Johnson about what the availability of anti-COVID pills might mean for the future of the pandemic. It's the beginning of the building out of the treatments for COVID that will allow us to manage it over a longer term of potentially years. We now know this virus is so wily and we can't predict everything that it's going to do, but these these pills are going to help us fight against this threat. So tell me about what Pfizer announced last week. Pfizer announced that the final analysis of their test of their anti-COVID pill in high-risk patients, so people who are older or have underlying medical conditions, was very effective, about 90% effective at keeping people out of the hospital and dying. It's a really strong effect and could be a really powerful addition to our treatment toolkit. So this is the anti-COVID pill from Pfizer, but there's also one that's being produced by Merck as well, right? What is that pill about? 
Yep, there's two. They work in slightly different ways. And the Pfizer one is extremely effective in its clinical trial. The Merck one has been much more middling and modest in its efficacy. And the Merck pill showed about a 30% effect in decreasing hospitalizations and death. But it might not be a situation where we can choose which one we have because there simply won't be enough of them to give everyone. So people may have to take, you know, the best tool available to them. So for the people who have received these pills in the clinical trials, like how does it actually work? You said that you take them not when you get to the hospital or anything, but when you actually have symptoms? Yes, you would get them shortly after testing positive is the idea. And because they're pills, you can just get them at a pharmacy or a point of care is the idea. I mean, the exact uh, way that it will work has not yet been revealed uh, in terms of access because they aren't yet available. So I don't can't tell you exactly how it would work mm-hmm. for Um, a person that you know. However, because these can be taken at home, it's much easier. Right now, we have these super effective treatments called monoclonal antibodies. And it's a similar use. Uh, You test positive and then you go get these antibodies. But they take longer. They take a lot more involvement of the medical system Hmm. to get. So you have to go to an infusion center or go to a medical point of care place and get an injection, or in some cases, an infusion that takes like an hour, and then you have to sit there for monitoring afterwards. So it's just a really different and more familiar to many people way of getting a treatment is in this way. And people expect that, you know, in some future scenario, maybe these drugs are proven safe and effective enough, and there's enough of them where you could have them ship to you at home or something. You know, there's all kinds of scenarios about the future. Right now, we're talking about a time when supply will be constrained and when these drugs are still going to be new and only used uh, most likely in high-risk people. So it's not going to be the same as something you just keep in your medicine cabinet or anything like that, but it is going to be a lot easier than um, potentially going to get, you know, getting an infusion that takes a couple hours before you can get home. Mm Mm-hmm. So so the idea is that for people who take these pills in the few days after they test positive or or after they um have COVID symptoms, these pills allow them to just like write it out at home. It doesn't get too bad. You don't have symptoms that lead people to end up being hospitalized. Yes. How have public health officials responded to the news that, that this pill is so effective? Oh, they're excited because we need more treatments and options, especially with a, you know, a number of cases expected in the coming weeks and months. Um, So more options and more easily to deliver options is always going to be a good thing. They've immediately also, though, tried to tell people that getting sick is not better than preventing sickness. It's much more powerful to prevent sickness with vaccination than it is to rely on that you get a test, that you get pills, that you get a monoclonal. Like these are all kind of just bets that you could get the treatments and that they would work. They're not perfect. So, you know, it's a huge helpful step, but it doesn't cancel out the primary importance of preventing these cases in the first place. And do we know if these antiviral pills hold up against the Omicron variant? 
They are both expected to, because they work in a very different way than the antibodies generated by vaccines or the monoclonal antibodies that people take by injection or infusion. Those really depend on recognizing the spiky protein that's on the outside of the virus. And these ones interrupt different enzymes that the virus has. Uh, They work in different ways, but they don't depend on the spike. Hmm. So that could be a good thing because the spike protein is the part that has mutated in the Omicron variant. And so if it's working on a different part of the virus, then it could or is likely to still be effective. Yes, Pfizer did some lab assays that they reported as well that affirmed their belief that it's going to hold up. So that's good news. And the drugs are are expected to. Merck hasn't yet shown such data, but we're expecting to um, them to do that. We can never expect too much with this virus, but they mm-hmm. do work in a very different way. And you also talked about the challenges of mass producing and disseminating these pills. Is there a plan so far for how Pfizer intends to do that once it becomes FDA authorized? Like how many doses they have, how many doses they're going to be able to provide at some point, maybe next year? Um, They're scaling up very rapidly. I think their estimate for delivery by the end of the year was pretty modest, like 180,000 treatment courses. And then Mm -hmm. Longer term, they've they've kept changing the number, but we're talking about like tens of millions type uh, scale in hmm. 2022. These are pills that are a lot easier to make than some other kinds of products that require like living cells in a bioreactor to make them. So they're they're easier to scale up. Merck similarly has said they're going to have more this year, 10 million treatment courses and more next year as well. So this is a much more scalable like product than some of the other stuff that we've had. Monoclonals are expensive and hard to manufacture, so we can't have enough of them for mm everyone to take and this will be easier. But, you know, like I said, it is easier to prevent a disease than it is to treat it. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. kind of take away that first uh, step. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a plan to get these pills to people in other countries? Yes, both of the companies have entered into licensing agreements to try and uh, get global manufacturing, particularly for lower middle income countries, those could be really powerful for countries that haven't yet gotten access to vaccines. Much of the world has not been as lucky as the United States um, and other wealthy countries. And so this would be kind of easy to deliver and have on hand in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. I'm also curious about what kind of effect this might have on the healthcare system, because I think we are reaching a point yet again where we're seeing hospitals who are basically sending out a cry for help or saying, look, we're running out of beds, we're running out of manpower, that things are getting really bad. And in some ways, it's not that surprising because we've seen this before. But I wonder if this is like a light at the end of the tunnel for many of these hospitals that are trying to just prevent people from showing up with severe COVID symptoms. It's definitely a good sign, but this isn't going to be some kind of miracle in the short term. I mean, there. Are, first of all, we're not talking about it having enough medicine on hand for the predicted surge in the coming weeks. Uh, Omicron is just taking over very rapidly and the number of cases is going to be very staggering, I think, if we follow the pattern of other countries, which we should probably 
expect. So we're not talking about necessarily alleviating the pain of the winter surge. But yeah, Mm -hmm. overall, this is the kind of tool that we need longer term. I think it's like a mixed message. This is all good news, having more tools, more easy to use tools. That's really powerful. The monoclonal antibodies that have been remarkably effective against COVID, two of the three that are used as treatments right now in the United States are seriously challenged, most likely going to be wiped off the shelf very, very soon. And so that leaves one, which is great that we even have one, but it's not going to be, and they're not going to be enough of that. So we're just kind of rebalancing the treatment toolkit. So I just, treatments are important, but they're not the first thing. And it's riskier to depend on them as your primary line of defense. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Spernovsky. After the break, a look at the life and legacy of Bell Hooks. We'll be right back. Last week, Bell Hooks passed away at the age of 69. She was an author, feminist, and cultural critic. Here she is on a 90s public access show talking about her work. I always think that part of the genius of Bell Hooks, such as it is, is that I bring together standpoints that are, that are often not brought together in our nation. Bell Hooks's work centered on Black women. And as Mickey Kendall writes, Hooks made us think differently about Black womanhood, feminism, and even Beyonce. When a powerhouse like Bell Hooks dies, it is a shock. You know they're human. They tell you that in word and deed, and yet you expect them to live forever. She was an icon whose legacy will outlast her life. She was also a person who ate, drank, told stories, and was, as we all are, sometimes wrong. Kendall is the author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. We asked her to read this remembrance she wrote about bell hooks for The Post. For many young feminists, Hook's work was the entry point to theory, shared in a language they could understand without an advanced degree. Her ideas were present in academia, integral to the foundation of the next generation of feminist thought, but they were also approachable. She spoke to those who might never feel welcome in the ivory tower, as well as those who carved a place for themselves there. The writer who died Wednesday at 69 reminded the world that no one needs permission to write, that there are never too many artists or thinkers, women, especially Black women, need to write themselves into history so that the world can change, can become something better for those who would otherwise be forgotten. As she said in Remembered Rapture, the writer at work, No Black woman writer in this culture can write too much. Indeed, no woman writer can write too much. No woman has ever written enough. She embraced actress and activist Laverne Cox and by proxy trans womanhood, publicly and enthusiastically. During a 2014 panel discussion, 
Cox explained how hooks had affected her life. Ideas of what it means to be a woman. So that moving away from these ideas of, of essentialized womanhood that, that held feminism back. And I found myself there as, as, a, as a gender non-conforming college student. I, I wasn't quite ready to accept my own womanhood, but I was, I was like, there might be a space for me here. And I... In fact, during that same discussion, Hooks was critical of Orange is the New Black the show that made Cox famous and reproachful of the way the actress presented herself. While Cox said she felt empowered by her traditionally feminine aesthetic choices, she also wondered, Am I, you know, sort of feeding into the patriarchal gaze when I can, you know, in my blonde wig? Hooks responded, yes. She was known for a razor-sharp wit accompanied by an infectious smile. And yet Hooks was in many ways as susceptible to the perils of misogyny and respectability politics as anyone else. She famously leaned into critiques of Beyonce, calling her award-winning visual album Lemonade capitalist money-making at its best. And on a panel in 2014 with Janet Mock, she said Beyonce was colluding in the construction of herself as a slave. I see a part of Beyonce that is, in fact, anti-feminist, that is a terrorist, especially in terms of the impact on young girls. For many, these words were shocking. Beyonce's feminism may be imperfect, and it's certainly open to analysis and critique. But should her monumental creation be so easily dismissed? Hooks had specific ideas of what Black feminism should be and could callously dismiss those outside of her vision. It's easy to look at our heroes retroactively and only see the best about them. But the things they got wrong can also teach us where we can do better, where we can set aside our biases and respond to the person in front of us as a fellow human. In Hooks, for instance, some may find contradiction between her words and her behavior. She was anti-capitalist and a landlord. She struggled with the public expression of sexuality by Black women such as Beyonce. And yet, in a 1996 article, she wrote about a romantic relationship she had with a former student. In that piece, she laid out an argument for the best ethics of conducting such relationships. But fundamentally, it is clear, even in her own writing, that there was a power imbalance that could do harm. She taught us how to live, to laugh, and to write and to fight. She also taught us an unforgettable lesson, that even those who do some of the hardest work to make change possible will have missteps. The myths that will arise around her as time passes, as those who knew her as a person and not just an icon also fade from the public consciousness, will probably erase her complexities. In the way of all icons, eventually the person will be forgotten by most, and what remains will be a monument to her accomplishments. But she was more than her successes, and the best way to honor her would be to remember the full, complicated person she was and learn from it. As Hooks herself said, For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? Mickey Kendall is the author of Hood Feminism. This story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Renny Spernofsky. It was edited by Alexis Diao. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.